A man put a sign in front of his auto repair shop. It said, beware of bargains in life, especially in brain surgery, parachutes, and auto repairs. There are truly some points in life at which bargains are absolutely no good. Things we don't want to take chances on. There was a a cultist man who came calling on a man in a village and said, uh, the, the man said, come on in, you're offering me a better deal than what I'm getting up there at the church. We must go beyond that which looks good to find value, to find truth, to find God's truth. And this morning we'll be talking a good bit about Christian discernment and how to discern things. Listen to what Philippians 1 says. It says, And it is by prayer, it is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Christian discernment. Discernment in in Scripture is, is that skill which enables us to differentiate Wrong from right, it's the ability to see issues clearly. And we desperately need to cultivate this idea of discernment uh, in our lives so that we can distinguish things like light from darkness, which John has already talked about, purity from defilement, righteousness from unrighteousness, best from better, and principles from pragmatics. And so in our text this morning in 1 John chapter 3 and part of chapter 4, we'll be looking at discerning our own hearts and discerning false teaching. And this morning, they don't sound like they go together, discerning our hearts and discerning false teacher, and they don't, they don't necessarily sound like they go together, but it's the greatness of God that gives us strength to overcome in both of these. So let's look at 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 19, where we left off last week, and we'll read through verse 24, and we'll pick up in chapter 4 in a little bit. 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before God. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The first thing that we need to discern this morning is to discern discern our own hearts. And the first type of heart we see in this passage is a condemning heart. If you look at verse 19, verse 19 hinges off of verse 18. This is kind of some continuity here, and it's connected to the idea that we learned last week that we are to love one another as evidence of our salvation. He said if, if you love one another, this is evidence and proof that you are someone who is walking in faith. You are born of God. You are of God. You are in the truth. And in verse 18, we're told that we are not just to love in word, but in deed and in truth. So it's not just like we go around telling everybody we love each other. That's, that's easy to do, right? But it's loving in deed and in truth. It's loving in, uh, in action. Now in verse 19, he says, this is how we know we are of the truth and reassure our hearts. Christians are people of the truth. We are people who love the truth. We stand on truth. We preach the truth. If Christians should be anything, we should be people of truth. Amen? 
We should represent truth. The alternative is to say that we're of the truth, but actually show signs of falsehood or hypocrisy. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest reasons people give for not going to church is that of hypocrisy. The church is full of hypocrites. You've heard that, right? Well, there's a couple of things I would say to that. First, uh, is, it's kind of an old preacher I heard speak of this years ago. He said, you've got to be smaller than a hypocrite to hide behind one. The second is this. Hypocrites are people who say they are one thing and actually turn out to be another. This is not what we espouse here at the Vine. We do not claim to be perfect. Amen? We are pursuing perfection. We are pursuing holiness. We want to be righteous, but we're not infallible. We still make mistakes. That doesn't make us a hypocrite. That makes us human. Amen? And we are people who've been redeemed by God, and we should be very careful to represent truth and to live a life of purity and holiness in front of others so that they don't have an excuse. But at the end of the day, here at the Vine, we don't claim that we got it all together. Amen? As a matter of fact, my dad told me, he said, son, if you ever find the perfect church, don't go there. You'll mess it up. Even your pastors are not perfect here. We don't claim to be perfect, but we are pursuing together holiness and righteousness and truth. John is encouraging Christians here, telling them they are of the truth. And this is meant is not meant to make us doubt our salvation. You know, I've been thinking a lot about last week's message and about sinfulness. And I, I, I fear that some might take away from that message, man, I really need to be doubting my salvation. That's not John's purpose in this writing. Actually, John's doing the opposite. He's reassuring Christians. This, this whole book is really about assurance of salvation. It's about helping Christians who are going through difficult times and difficult false teachings to stand firm on the truth of the gospel that they heard from the beginning and to be assured of their salvation. Even though they change, God doesn't. God remains the same. And that's the encouragement that we see of John. We're just saying about blessed assurance. Amen? We need that assurance of our salvation. And here we see that if we love others, we are of the truth. But we also see from this verse that we reassure our hearts before him. This is, this is kind of where I want to dig down a little bit. It's within the general context of John's teaching on assurance that we read this paragraph about a condemning heart. A condemning heart. You see, however grounded you are in your faith, your heart will sometimes need reassurance. Your heart will need to be reassured. Look at verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us. The implication here is that our hearts, and the word heart is sometimes uh, rendered as, as conscience, our hearts or our conscience sometimes fall under the influence of the accuser of the brethren. Sometimes it falls under the, the same influence of Satan that we accuse ourselves. And, and that's why this morning we must discern our hearts. This takes effort and, and perhaps even meditating on God's word and, and lining our lives up with what God teaches us. And I say God's word because that is what we test things by, amen? We don't test things by our heart. We don't test things by our feelings. Uh, you've probably heard people say that you should follow your heart. You ever heard that? Just follow your heart. And I am not sure that that's a good idea, considering that our hearts can condemn us, as we see here. What they often mean is that you should follow your feelings. What you want, assuming that you're a pretty good person, if you desire good things, then, uh, then you should just follow your heart, follow your feelings, and you'll probably make a pretty good decision. But what if you don't 
want what God wants? What if you don't desire the things God desires? And this can happen. This does happen. Often. And we must, we must reassure our hearts. And uh, what we see here is that we need something more concrete than our hearts to follow. Amen? So we follow God's word. Listen to what Jeremiah says about our heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So listen, we got a heart, our conscience, and, and, and our conscience needs to be redeemed. Amen? We need help with our conscience. We need here to reassure a condemning heart, a condemning conscience. And, and so who can understand our hearts? We see it in verse 20. God can. God can understand our hearts. He is greater, it says, than our hearts, and he knows everything. So we don't follow our hearts. We follow God, and we follow his word, and our hearts should be, follow me here for a minute, our hearts should be continually renewed in God's presence before God so that our hearts are in line with God's word, and it's then and only then that you can follow your heart. When your heart lines up with who God is and what God has done and his will, then by all means, follow your heart. In verse 19, we are told, reassure our hearts before him. That, that can also be translated in God's presence, in his presence. Reassure your heart in his presence. And it's very emphatic in this verse. The idea is that we are to set our hearts at rest in God's presence. How do we do that? How, how, how can we do that? We must do it. How can we do it? We can only do it if we know that we're of the truth. Our hearts can only be reassured in God's presence if we know we are of the truth. You see, it's the mind's knowledge by which the heart's doubts can be silenced. So we look back at verse 19. By this we know. We know. We have knowledge. And we find this key to discerning and settling our hearts. In, the instant, in, in this instance, the phrase, by this we know, refers back to the previous, uh, previous teaching. That namely of love. Why is love so important? Why does love always seem to be the test that we look back to? Well, true love in the sense of self-sacrifice is, uh, as, as mentioned in, in chapter 3, verse 16, is not something that's uh, natural to human beings in their fallen state. A heart that finds itself, or a person who finds themselves willing to lay down their lives for their brothers, that's signs of faith in Jesus Christ. That's signs of someone who is of the truth. So we reassure our hearts of the truth, which is evidenced by our actions, in deed and in truth. So follow me with it. With me with this verse 21 if our heart does not condemn us we have confidence before God so if we love in truth we reassure our hearts we have confidence before God you see the fruit of love is confidence let me ask you this do you ever typically or do you typically have issues with assurance of salvation when you're acting in love towards others or is it when you're walking in the flesh in the flesh, we have no confidence before God. But in the spirit of truth, when we are walking and living in truth, we have confidence before God. So what else is there to say about this condemning heart? We'll look at verse 20 again. It's as if there's three participants in this exchange. We have our hearts, ourselves, as kind of distant from our, distinct from our hearts, and God. We must reassure our hearts. But how? As we already mentioned, it's partly by the fact that we know we are of the truth. The other part is the fact that we know that God is greater than our hearts. And he himself knows everything. 
our conscience, our hearts, often accuse us justly. At those times, it can only be overruled or assured by God's power and his power to pardon us. When we're accused by our own hearts of sin, we trust in God's pardon. We trust in his forgiveness. But we must know that our conscience is not infallible. Its condemnation may often be unjust. And we can then come to God who is greater and more knowledgeable. He knows everything, including our secret motives and our deepest resolves that we have inside of us. And we come to God and it's implied that he is more merciful towards us than our own hearts are. We come to him and we find mercy. We find grace. Our hearts condemn us. Lead us to a place where we feel like we need to be judged. And yet God's merciful because he knows everything. So we don't trust our hearts, but we trust the knowledge of God. So we come to seeking, we come seeking his knowledge because he knows everything. You know, we talk about who God is. And we talk about the word omniscient. God knows everything. Well, his omniscience, it should relieve us, not terrify us. But often when we talk about God's omniscience, it's often used as kind of a scare tactic, isn't it? God knows everything. He's watching you. He knows if you've been bad or good. Well, that may be somebody else. It's this all-knowing God, and and it kind of makes us think we better watch out. But the reality is when God knows us, he knows everything, it should be a relief to us. See, God seeing and know everything should be a great comfort to us because he knows our heart. That's why David can pray something along the lines of, Lord, you know my heart. So it's knowledge that can quiet a condemning heart. Our knowledge of our sincere love for the brothers or for others and supremely God's knowledge of our thoughts and motives that can quiet a condemning heart. So our trust in an all-knowing God And he is greater than our hearts. This reassures our condemning hearts. But John then turns his attention in verses 21 through 24 to an uncondemning heart. An uncondemning heart. Look at it in verse 21. It says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. What a blessing to have a clear conscience. Amen? What a blessing to have a clear conscience before God. To have peace with God. But we also get the blessing of confidence before God. This idea of communion with God. We're at peace, at one with God. We're trusting Him, and, and His Word is abiding in us. Now, the Word here is more of a picture of a son appearing before a father and not that of an accused person appearing before a judge. That's important because John is wanting to encourage his readers here. It's not as if a, a person is appearing before a judge waiting to be dismissed, but it's this idea of a son before a father. I don't know about you, but there's been uh, times in my life, and I know not everybody's got different fathers and things of that nature, and we celebrated Father's Day last week, but I, I can remember going to my father after I had sinned, after I had done something disobedient to my father. And I remember um, expecting the worst and sometimes getting things that were really bad because of my mistakes. But often, he was much more merciful than I figured. I remember a time where I wrecked my dad's truck. I was uh, late for school and uh, picking up a friend of mine. I was late for school and zooming down a gravel road. I've got a long wheelbase Dodge truck. Man, I'm cruising. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And I get it to this 45-degree turn in this road, and, and I don't slow down, man. I just keep on going. Well, the back end of that truck swings around, and I steer into it like I was taught, and it swings back around, and I steer into it, swings back, boom, right up into a tree. 
had a had an eight foot CB antenna on the back of that truck. It was horizontal. It was supposed to be vertical, but now it's horizontal, right? Pulling up at school, everybody's laughing at me. So I head home and I get to, I get to the house and I'm like, Mom, Dad's at work, you know? I'm like, Mom, man, I, I just and I was I was on Olive Road over there and this deer jumped out in front of me and uh and uh, man, I hit this tree. Dad's truck's really messed up, you know. And uh, so Dad gets home that evening and he's like, "What happened to the truck?" You know, I'm like, "Dad, it's just deer, man, it's just deer." And my friend, he's like, uh, he, he's he's not very honest, and uh, he says, "Yeah, it was it, it, it was a buck. It was about like a ten point." And uh, I'd already told Dad it was a doe, you know. And so anyway, our story's already getting mixed up. And um, I remember I remember working that week uh, at a at a, a neighbor's house, and we were we were working on this barn and, and tearing the tin off of this barn. And all of a sudden, I'm down to like the last few pieces of tin, and this building begins to fall, and it almost knocks me out. I mean, I fall right in the threshold of it, and uh, I mean, it, could, it was this close to just falling on top of me, and I remember getting up going, I'm going to tell my dad the truth. <laughs> dad was in the back 40 putting corn out for the deer. I'm just, I'm revealing how country I am, okay, and uh Man, I walk across the field, and I meet him halfway. He, he thinks something's wrong, and I'm like, Dad, I'm sorry. I, I lied to you. I, there wasn't a deer. I, I was going way too fast. Put his arm around me. He says, Son, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. <laughs> I saw the tracks in the gravel that afternoon. I, I knew you were going too fast. He said, You're going you're gonna to pay for the truck. And I did. I worked the truck off. I remember him being so much more merciful than I expected. That's the idea here is that we have confidence before God. We come to a God who's not, not waiting to strike us with a bolt of lightning. He doesn't, he does, listen, he doesn't excuse or pardon our sin uh, just, just lightly. His son Jesus died for our sin. And he shows this mercy and this grace to us. It's not as if we're walking before a judge. We're walking before a father who puts his arm around us and says, your sins have been paid for. Your sins have been paid for. That's the idea that John is teaching this. So our trust in this all-knowing God, that, that this God is greater than our hearts, is important. So we get this blessing of a clear conscience. We get this blessing of being able to stand before God with confidence because of what he's done. But look at the second blessing we get. Man, what a, what a blessing to have an uncondemning heart. Look at verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. We have confidence not only to enjoy access to God in prayer, but to receive answers from him also. What a blessing, huh? To have an uncondemning heart here. This is the same combination of confidence that's granted in chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Just look over to the next page. Likely, it's, it's right there. Verses 14 and 15 in chapter 5 it says and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask we know that we have the request that we have asked of him john here doesn't mean to imply that god hears and answers our prayers merely based on this subjective idea that we have a clear conscience and an uncondemning heart. That's, that's not what he's teaching here. Verse 22, we see that there's an objective moral reason, namely because we obey his commands, and more generally, we do what pleases him. So one, one commentator said it this way, obedience is the indispensable condition, not the meritorious cause of answered prayer. And, and Jesus 
Jesus is our example of this, isn't he? Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father, and when he prayed, the Father heard his prayers. This is also an echo of the Lord's promise in Matthew chapter 7, where he said, Ask, and it will be given to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Obedience, listen, obedience to God is an important part of our prayer life. Obedience to God is a significant part of our prayer life. When we read a a verse like this, it would be easy to think that this is more meritorious in nature, meaning that we are earning God's blessing of answered prayer by our obedience. But I want us to remember something, that when we read the Bible, we must read it in its entirety, in, in its complete context. This is, this is called, this is the idea of the unity of Scripture. Remember, uh, we learned last summer in theology class, if you were a part of that, with Pastor Andy, that we asked the question, what does the whole Bible say about a topic? So John is not giving a complete theology of prayer here on on how God hears and why God hears us, but we find a piece of it here, and the piece we find is obedience. When we walk in obedience, God hears and answers our prayers. That's significant. That's important. We find another piece of it in chapter 5, verse 14. If we ask according to his will, it's another piece of the theology of prayer. To obey his commands in verse 22 is the condition of being heard simply because such obedience is evidence that our will is lined up with God's will. And we are asking things according to his will. We're also called to pray in Christ's name in John chapter 16 and for God's glory in a place like James chapter 4. Now, we won't take time to look at all the passages that speak of what God uh, is saying about prayer, uh, how he hears and answers our prayers, but you can look at a place like Psalm 37, Psalm 66, Proverbs 15, Isaiah 59, Mark, Matthew, and just about every book of the Bible speaks about prayer. And we need to take those into context and remember them all. In this passage, what John is teaching us is something very specific, that if we obey God's commands, God hears and answers our prayers. It's an important part of our prayer life, this idea of obedience. 1 John 3, 23, look at verse 23. And this is his commandment. Because we ask, what commands? What commands? What commands am I to follow so that God hears and answers my prayers? Well, verse 23 tells us, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Now, fundamentally, this is just one command. The word command here is is singular, and this command is to embrace faith in Jesus Christ and to love one another. They go together, don't they? We've already talked about this. When you embrace faith in Jesus Christ, you love one another. The, The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. They go together. So the faith that is commanded here is acknowledgment of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That is to believe in the name, in the revealed person of his son, Jesus Christ. We will see uh, more about the importance of that confession in in chapter 4 in just a few minutes. But John finishes this section with the idea of abiding again in verse 24. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom God has given us. There's a difference in this reference than the previous references of abiding in the book of John. This is the first time John mentions a mutual abiding. We are in him, and he is in us. This is important. This may be tied back to John chapter 15, where 
You are, I am the vine, you are the branches. Where Jesus said in chapter 15, verse 4, abide in me and I abide in you. It's this idea of mutual abiding. And the condition of this mutual, this continuous mutual indwelling is the same condition for which God hears and answers our prayers. And that's obedience. Obedience to the commandments. And in this closing section, we see that John unites the various strands for which he is has been teaching and unfolding from the beginning of his book. That is that no one dare claim that he lives in Christ and Christ in him unless he is obedient, unless he is walking in the Spirit, unless he is obedient to three fundamental commands that John has been expounding on. Belief in Jesus, belief in Jesus as the Christ, love for one another, and moral righteousness. If you don't have those, there's no evidence. That salvation is yours. So we must discern our hearts. When they're condemning, when they're uncondemning, we discern them. And even if they are condemning or uncondemning, we must discern them. The second thing we must discern is we must discern the spirits. Look at at chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 through 6. 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 6. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, I wanted to include chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 here uh, because it has a lot to do with this idea of discernment. This could easily stand alone as its own message, so I will try to condense it a little bit for us this morning. Uh, We move from a moral test of righteous living and righteousness and loving one another to a more doctrinal test where we discern the spirits. This has less to do with obedience in moral righteousness and more to do with obedience in your belief in who Jesus is, who Jesus was and who he is. This is not the first time that John has talked about this. He's kind of swinging back through it, talking about the Antichrist again. And because this is not the first time, it's very obvious that John is dealing with some specific teachings in the time that he wrote this book. Specific teachings that called Jesus something he wasn't. False doctrines about who Jesus was. If you look back in verse 24 of chapter 3, we read that we have been given the Spirit. You see it's a capital S there. This is the Holy Spirit. And here we see that there are other spirits, lowercase s, that are active in the world. And it's important to observe that the command to believe in the name of God's Son, back in chapter 3, verse 23, is followed by this prohibition, do not believe every spirit. Do not follow every spirit. And this is similar to the way that we have a command to love the brothers and sisters in Christ and not love the world. So you have a positive and a negative effect here. And there are two particular spirits to discern between here. Actually, there's one spirit, capital S, and many spirits, lowercase s, that are combined into what John calls the spirit of error in verse 6 and the Antichrist in verse 4, the spirit of the Antichrist. So how do we know these apart? Look at, look at verse 2. 
By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. How do you know if the Spirit's from God? They confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Is that, is that all they need to do? Is this, is this a complete theology of that? No, we need the unity of all of Scripture. Remember that. But very particularly, they must believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Now, how do we know if some, a spirit's not of God? Every spirit, verse 3, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. So one confesses the true Jesus and one do not, does not. They are the Antichrist. They are against Christ. They are opposed to Christ. Now, I want you to see what this means in this text. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ come in the flesh. This is the doctrine of Jesus' humanity or the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus existed from the foundation of the world. He was before all things, and in him and through him, all things were made. We see that in somewhere like Colossians. Amen? We know that Jesus didn't just pop up on the scene, but there are people who were teaching in this time that Jesus just kind of took on the nature of the Christ or the Messiah at his baptism and that that nature of the Messiah left him right before his death on the cross. That's false doctrine, amen? That's heresy. That's in opposition to everything that we've learned from the Scriptures. And so there are folks who would say this, and this is, you know, there are a lot of folks who say, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy. And they say, but I'm really not into all that doctrinal stuff. Well, folks, all that doctrinal stuff really matters. Who Jesus is, is really significant. As a matter of fact, if you don't get the doctrinal stuff right, you don't get the right Jesus. And if you don't get the right Jesus, you miss everything. Who Jesus is is significant to who we are. So there were these false doctrines that were being taught about Jesus going on at the time. Some were teaching that the, the Spirit of Christ rested on Jesus' baptism. Like I said, there was this idea of Gentile pseudo-Christianity. You've probably heard of this term before, Gnosticism. It was very prevalent in that day and time. It was a crazy time to live in Christianity. Man, it's a good thing we don't have to deal with the different groups of people who teach different doctrines about Jesus today. Amen? Oh, but we do. Oh, but we do. I mean, the easiest ones to call out are Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who, who absolutely deny who Jesus is in the Scriptures, who talk about Jesus, but they both claim, make claims contrary to Jesus as the Messiah and coming as the divine God-man who made atonement for sin. Look, there's a lot of false doctrines we could, we could espouse. Out. Those are easy to name, but there's the prosperity gospel that, man, just, hey, if you do this, this, and this, God will bless you, this, 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 and this. There's so many false teachings and false doctrines out there. We must discern the spirits. This isn't just for John's readers who are dealing with Gnosticism. Gnosticism is all around us. False doctrine this morning is all around us. It will be knocking on your door probably this year. And you must be able to discern the spirits. And John is encouraging you here. Hey, if somebody comes and tells you that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, don't listen to them. They are not of the Spirit of God. So they have their own Jesus. They teach and preach their own Jesus. We must discern these false doctrines. 
And we refer to these teachings as heresies. In verses 1 through 3, John is speaking of those who would preach and teach these false doctrines. And how do you discern if someone is from God? They speak truth about who Jesus is or they speak perverted messages about Jesus. And those who speak these messages that are perverted are people who are speaking heresies. They're called antichrists in verse 3. And John has addressed them before, so we're not going to go into detail there. But we see that John not only addresses those who are speaking these heresies, but he, speak, he addresses those who are hearing the heresies as well, who are hearing false teaching. We sat in verse 4 through 6. Look at verse 4. Little children, you, he's talking to the Christians here, are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You are from God. These are the folks who have acknowledged that Jesus has come in the flesh. And, and, and they have overcome these false teachers. They've overcome the false teachers. Basically, you haven't fallen for these false teachings. You haven't been deceived by the Antichrist. And the idea here is that you have not only tested and discerned them to be of error, but you have absolutely conquered them. You have repudiated their teaching decisively. You have called Jesus who he is and called their teaching error. In a day and age where it's not good to tell people they're wrong, this is an area we must, as Christians, tell people they are wrong. If they get Jesus wrong, they lose everything. So we confess who Jesus is. And the cause of your victory, how do we do this? It's found in verse 4. You have one in you. Do you see that in verse 4? There is one in you. This is the spirit of truth that we see mentioned in verse 6. This is the anointing mentioned back in chapter 2. You have one in you who is greater. The Holy Spirit is greater. Although the evil spirits are great, the Holy Spirit is greater. We have this one in us and the greatness of God in you and the illumination of the Holy Spirit helps us to overcome false teaching. In verses 5 and 6, we see the contrast between false teachers and true apostles. And also the contrast between two different audiences. Those who would listen to them, namely the world, it says there, and whoever knows God or whoever is of the truth. So how do you know if a teacher is of the world? Here's Here's a way to discern if a teacher is of the world. Everybody loves them. The world listens to them. The world welcomes them to speak. The world invites them in to speak at different places. And how do you know if someone is, uh, how do you validate a a true teacher, a true apostle? John says that you can tell that our message is from God because God's people listen to it and they receive it. That's how you tell if a preacher is from God or not. God's people. God's people validate it. They listen to it and they receive it. This is important because a lot of people think the pastors are in charge. Listen, we're not in charge. God's in charge. We're called to speak forth the truths of the gospel, and we try to do so as best we can. I wonder what would happen at the vine if Pastor Andy or myself got up here and began to teach heresy, began to teach something contrary to what you were, you've heard from the beginning, as John would say it. You know what I think? I think you wouldn't have it. I think there's enough maturity at the Vine Church that you would absolutely call out heresy. You would call it what it is because you know the truth, because you are people of the truth. You would not receive it. 
you would discern that it's not true and you reject the false teaching. Let's do that with every spirit. Let's do that at our door when somebody comes knocking. Let's do it at work when somebody's trying to teach us something contrary to the word. Let's do it in our homes when someone comes in and tries to teach us something different. Let's discern every spirit. Let's test every spirit. I want to close with this. We serve a great God. He is greater than your heart, and he is greater than he who is in the world. In Christ, you have a perfect heavenly Father who longs for you to have a healthy heart and a clear conscience, and you can. This morning, you can have a clear conscience. If you have never trusted in Jesus, follow this command. Believe in Jesus as the Christ. Trust him. He came and lived a perfect, sinless life. He died for you. He laid down his life so that you might have forgiveness of sin. The scripture calls us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning and receive a clear conscience. Receive a new life. Receive eternal life. Praise God. If you know Jesus, then recall who you are in him through Christ by his Holy Spirit. Love others as you have been loved by him and receive a clear conscience this morning. Have an uncondemning heart. Obey his commands and please him out of gospel gratitude for he is for who he is and what he has done in your life. And know that this battle is not just for your heart, but your heart, your mind, and your soul. Test the spirits. Confess Christ as Lord. Trust the Holy Spirit who is in you and stay latched on to God's word. Jesus is your strength. Jesus is your safety. Jesus is your salvation. Jesus is life. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, God. Thank you for the teachings of Scripture that we can trust. Lord, help us not to trust in how we feel this morning, not to trust in uh, anything that's happened in our life except for what has been confirmed by your word. I pray that we would be able to discern our hearts, God, and we'd be, we would be able to have a clear conscience before you, knowing that you paid the price for our sins. And God, I pray that we would be careful to test the spirits and all the different types of teachings out there that try to deter us from the true gospel. Help us to know that we are of the truth and to always be people who proclaim the truth here at the Vine. God, we love you, and we can only say that because you first loved us. And we make our prayer in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh. Amen.